Let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be picking up again as we've been working our way through this glorious letter that the Lord has given to us through our brother Paul. Romans chapter 8, going to be picking up where we left off last week. That has us in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord now from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. We thank you, Lord, for this precious gift that you have given to us, Lord, this this living word that through your Spirit's working causes dead hearts even to live, blinded eyes to see and deaf ears to be made to hear. We pray, Lord, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us and through us by your word. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word this morning, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, The Great Divorce, says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. In other words, people will either submit themselves to God's will and be saved, or they will do their own will and remain condemned, remain condemned to hell. There is no third option. Now, I may have some quibbles with some of Lewis's theological conclusions. In fact, I do. But the truth is, there really are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are in Christ, and there are those who are not. And Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, that we've just read together, draws a clear contrast between these two kinds of people. Those who are believers on the one hand and those who are not. Those who have been justified and those who are condemned. Those who are God-centered, those who are self-centered. There is a sharp contrast being drawn now between two sets of people, the only two sets of people. It is a black and white Distinction being made, no gray area, no mixing of categories going on. Paul doesn't want us to have any confusion whatsoever about what he is saying. Absolutely no one is neutral. We either love God or we hate him. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. John MacArthur says this, God differentiates people solely on the basis of their relationship to him. And the difference is absolute Obviously, there are degrees in both categories. Some unsaved people exhibit high moral behavior. And on the other hand, many saints do not mind the things of God as obediently as they should, but every human being is completely in one spiritual state of being or the other. He either belongs to God or he does not. There is no middle ground. That's what Paul's demonstrating for us here. He is is 
contrasting for us the mind of the unbeliever, which is set on the flesh, with the mind of the believer, which is set on the things of the Spirit. And all of us, again, are in one of these two categories. We have to to understand this before we can even have this conversation this morning. You are in one of these two camps. There is no third category presented to us in Scripture. There is no middle ground. There is no peace between these two camps. We are fully in one or we are fully in the other. And so Paul says in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Okay, all of them. All who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. All of them. So, So we see here two different natures of people. There is the nature of the unbeliever, which Paul describes as according to the flesh, dominated by the flesh. We've seen this, haven't we, in the early chapters of Romans, particularly the first three chapters, as Paul shows us what unredeemed humanity looks like, dominated, ruled, governed by the flesh, completely under its control. Again, the Bible, the Bible uses the language of slavery. The Bible uses the language of dead in sin, completely dominated and bound. The realm in which the unbeliever lives is carnal. It's, it's fleshly. That's all they know. The word, the word flesh here refers to our lustful appetites, our sinful desires, our selfish interests. John Stott says the flesh is our fallen egocentric human nature. It's animalistic. This is how animals live, right? They're, they're dominated by their urges, by their, their selfish desires. All animals, and I'm going to upset some pet owners here. I'm just going to dip my toes in the water. All animals are selfish. They're only selfish. They don't actually love you. They love what you can provide for them. Good Good talk. <laughs> Good talk. It's true. This is the unbeliever, dominated by selfishness, dominated by the desires of the flesh. They only always act in accord with what their flesh desires. That's what Paul says. The nature of believers, on the other hand, he describes as according to the Spirit. They're under the authority, not of their own flesh and their own selfish urges and lusts and passions. They are under the authority of the Holy Spirit. They are ruled by Him. They have new hearts. They have new minds. They have new wills. They have new desires. That's why, why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So believers were in this lump of humanity over here, dominated by our flesh, bound to it, But we have been totally transformed. We've been pulled over that, transported from the realm of the flesh and sin and death and condemnation into the realm of the Holy Spirit and holiness and joy and peace and life. Before, when we were in the flesh, we were the same as all humanity, as Paul has revealed to us in this glorious epistle that we have of Romans. We were in that same category as everyone else. We were enemies of God. We were dead in our sin. We were disobedient. We were morally incapable of pleasing God. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh. Everybody in this category right here, all unbelievers are in this category, dead in sin, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is a blanket statement about all of mankind. But then God caused all of that to change for us. He goes on in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You were dead, but God made us alive. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. This is the miracle of regeneration that Paul is describing here. It causes the person who is dead in sin to live. It actually transforms our very nature. Our nature previously and the nature of the unbeliever is death in sin, bound in sin, only sinning, dominated, controlled by sin and by the flesh. And God has given us an entirely new nature, controlled under the authority of the Spirit. Well, this nature then affects our mindsets. Again, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. This, this, this phrase here, set their minds, is actually one word in Greek. It means to be totally absorbed by something, completely consumed by something. It's not just an intellectual activity. We think about these things a lot. It's the whole attitude of the heart. It, it encompasses all of our faculties, our mind, our will, our affections, all of this. The unbeliever's entire world, entire existence revolves around living for the things of the flesh. Their, their thinking, their whole existence is characterized by godlessness. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes... And the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The unbelieving person, the unregenerate person, is single-minded in their devotion to these three things that John lines out. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look at the landscape of sinful humanity and tell me that all sinning doesn't fall into one of those categories. That this world isn't, isn't urging us on every front to live according to these things. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Now we might see in the unbeliever some incredibly intelligent, highly moral people, don't we? We might even see someone who is a nominal Christian. They, they're around the church, they go to the church, they consider themselves a Christian but they're dead in sin. They are fixed on these things. They are fixed on the things of the flesh. They have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They have worshiped, as Paul says in Romans chapter one, the creature rather than the creator. What's the creature most of people are, are worshiping in the world today? Thus, live for yourself. Do what makes you happy. Isn't, isn't all advertising aimed at the worship of the creature? 
oh, you need this. You got to have, oh, you'll be happy if you have this. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Okay, these are the things that we have fixed our minds on. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is, this is the differentiation between the unbeliever and the believer. The unbeliever is, is fixated on this list of vices that Paul goes through. And and, and we dare not sit here this morning and hear that list and think, I'm nowhere to be found on that list. But God has given us new hearts. God has given us new minds. God has given us new desires and new wills. The, what marks the believer is that their mind is set on the things of the Spirit. It's not just that we think of the things of the Spirit a lot. Our entire faculties, all of us, our mind, our will, our emotions are, are pointed right at the Spirit. It's the all-consuming direction of our lives to be set on God. Believers have a single-minded devotion to pleasing and honoring God. So the unbeliever has a single-minded devotion to pleasing the flesh. The believer has a single-minded devotion to pleasing God. As Jonathan Edwards would say, they have holy affections. They long for God. They long for sanctification. And again, we, we, we read a list like Paul gave us in Galatians 5, and we go, I'm, I'm like on there a lot. I don't just mean before my conversion, like a lot. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but believers hate their sin. Believers desire freedom from their sin. They long for God. They long for sanctification. He goes on in verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So we not only see two different natures, two different mindsets, we see two different results from all of that. Unbelieving man is consumed with the flesh. The believer has fixed his mind on the spirit and Paul gives us the result of these things, the fruit of these things. What, what happens as a result of these two ways of life? And he says, to set the mind on the flesh is death. Now notice Paul doesn't say to set the mind on the flesh leads to death. He says to set the mind on the flesh is death. The unsaved person is already dead. That's what we just read from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, just a little bit ago. You were, what? Dead in trespasses and sins. And then this state of deadness that they are in, they continue to live in, and it leads to an even greater deadness, the second death, the eternal death. He's already told us this back in chapter 6 of Romans. Chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Sin results in death. And so, so Paul is describing a present spiritual death leading to an even greater eternal death. 
Again in chapter 6, verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time for the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The unbeliever is walking in death every day, and then there's a final paycheck coming their way. They're getting installment paychecks, but at the end, they're going to get a balloon payment, a final paycheck, and that ultimate paycheck is death. It's the second death. It's eternal death, eternal condemnation, eternal destruction. That is what Paul says is the sure outcome for everyone in this group of people, every unbeliever. And it was the state that we were once in, but then again, that great word, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but. But to set the mind on the spirit is life. And peace. This, this, this also has a twofold implication for us. The, the believer is made alive, given peace with God. That's the state that we live in right now. And the outcome of this life that we now have in our living is eternal life, eternal peace in the age to come. So just as the unbeliever is walking in death right now with an even greater death to come, so the believer is walking in life right now with an even greater life in the age to come. We were once, though, dead in our sins. We were once enemies of God, but now we have been regenerated, made alive. We have been reconciled to God. We have assurance of our acceptance with God. This peace that we have now with God is the total opposite of the disposition of the sinner. So Paul, Paul has shown us now the nature of the unbelieving world versus the nature of those who are in Christ. He has shown us the mindset, what, what our entire lives are pointed towards are different. He has shown us the outcomes of this way of living. And now in verses 7 and 8, he just focuses in on the sinner, on the unbelieving one. He says, for the mind that is set on the, on the flesh, verse 7, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's a strong statement that Paul's making. Again, we are either fully in one category or fully in the other. There isn't the unbelieving, unregenerate person who's not hostile towards God. No, Paul is making absolute statements here. This word hostile means enmity with God. We are at war with God. So war on the one hand, hostility on the one hand, and peace on the other hand. Peace is the, the very opposite of that. We are not God's enemies if we are in Christ. We are his beloved friends, his beloved sons and daughters. We have been reconciled to God through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul told us this back in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So before we were justified, we did not have peace. There was no peace. There was nothing but hostility. We were at war with God, and Paul has revealed to us he was at war with us. We were hostile towards him. He had wrath towards us, but now because of Christ, the war is over. For all who are in Christ, the war is over. We have peace with God, total peace. He loves us. We love him. It's a total transformation from our previous state. 
Paul reminds us then just how, how, how bad it was for us. How bad it was for us before he saved us and how bad it is right now for all unbelievers. Verse 7 again, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul makes here in, in these two verses four statements about the unbeliever that reveal the depths of their rebellion, the depths of their hopeless situation. It is a powerful statement on what we would call doctrinally the total depravity of man. First, we see hostility towards God. The unbeliever is not neutral to God. He is an enemy of God. There are many, there are many unbelievers in this world, and, and, and we may even look back on our lives prior to our conversion and think, I wasn't hostile towards God. I wasn't an enemy of God, and friends, that's just not what the Scripture reveals to have been true about us. It's not what it reveals to be true about the unbelieving world. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, you, Paul says, were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. You might still be thinking, I, I never felt hatred towards God. I never did. I never felt hostility. I can tell you as a, as a young child growing up with Christian parents, uh, growing up as a young child in this church and then being a pastor's son later, there was never a moment where I did not believe that God existed and that the God revealed in Scripture was the God that existed. And that that God was good, that God was perfect, that the way of salvation was in Christ alone, revealed in the Scriptures alone. I never felt the, the, the urge to shake my fist to the heavens and, and proclaim blasphemies. Yet what Scripture reveals about me, although I didn't feel burning hatred, was that I was filled with hatred towards God, filled with animosity towards God, with hostility. I, I didn't desire to oppose God. Maybe you look back on your life before you were saved and you say, I never desired to be rebellious. But look, friends, this, this hostility towards God exhibits itself in different ways. Some is active rebellion, the active rebellion that shakes the fist in the face of its creator, that, that proclaims blasphemies with, with much anger. But there's also the hostility towards God that comes in the way of passive indifference. Notice what Paul says here. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. What makes it hostile to God? How do we know that it's hostile to God? For it doesn't submit to God's law. The one who does not submit to God's law, Scripture says, is hostile towards God. It is an act of hostility. The creator who made you, who owns you, who has told you how you ought to live, to disobey him is an act of hostility. It's not always in the outward vocal expressions of hatred. It is in the refusal to bow the knee. It is in the refusal to submit. That is hostility in the human heart. And that's every unbeliever on earth. The essence of sin is rebellion. The essence of sin is hostility towards God. Those of you who are parents and have raised children, it wouldn't matter to you how lovingly your child and how gently they express to you, I will not 
do what you have told me to do. They could say it with the most love while handing you a cookie that they've tried to bake for you. And you would take it what? As an act not of neutrality, of hostility. All sin is hostility towards God. All sin is rebellion. When we sin, what we reveal that in that moment, in that moment, what we are living for is our own glory rather than God's. The unbeliever lives in that state constantly, 100% of the time, not living for God's glory, living for their own. The believer, when we sin, we are revealing in that moment, that's what we're living for. We're living for ourselves. We're living for our glory. But that's the only state the unbeliever lives in all the time, hostility towards God. Second, the unbeliever does not submit to God's law. This word submit is, is used for a soldier submitting to orders from a commanding officer. The soldier is under that superior officer. They are under their authority. They are not free to say, I don't think I'm going to do this one. They're not free to just reject the orders of their superior. They're obligated to submit. They are obligated to defer to their superior. They are obligated to obey him. But the sinner is hostile in his heart towards God. He refuses to submit himself before his sovereign creator. Again, when we, when we say God is sovereign, we mean that God does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants, and he never has to ask anyone's permission. But the unbeliever tries to be their own sovereign, doing what they want, when they want, the way that they want, and nobody else better tell me how to live. Nobody better tell me what I can do and what I can't do. Well, what's driving that? We want to be God. We want to be our own sovereign. We're trying to usurp all of his authority and claim it for ourselves. And so many who, who even would call themselves Christians want to treat God like a buffet. You remember what buffets were? They used to exist a little over a year ago. Yeah. They, they think they can come to God and pick and choose what they want. I like this. I don't like this. I like this over here. I'll take some of that. I don't like this over here. I'll, I'll follow these commands. These commands I'm going to ignore. They feel outdated to me. They don't quite jive with my modern sensibilities. They've determined to be their own God, is what they've done. They refuse to submit to the authority of God's word. Isn't this what we see playing out in the world all around us? Certainly in our unbelieving culture, When the unbeliever hears God say, do this or don't do that, it responds with a raised fist in the air and says, how dare you? How dare you presume to tell me, an autonomous being, how I ought to live, what I can do and what I can't do. They are so determined to not be restrained by anything, they've become totally lawless, completely unrestrained morally insane. Look at the world around us. Look at what's happening in our culture. I know that, that many of you are like me. You look at the things that are happening in our culture and you shake your head and you say, we are living in the craziest world right now. People have lost their minds. They've lost the ability to even have a logical conversation anymore. They want to define basic realities, the family, marriage, Gender, ethics, 
the way of salvation. Everything's on the table. Everything's up for redefinition. They refuse to submit themselves before the law of God because they are determined to be a law unto themselves. I will call the shots. I will say how things go. Third then, third truth of the unbeliever, moral inability. So not only are they hostile towards God, not only do they refuse to submit to God's law, there's more going on. There's something driving that. Paul says they are not able to. They not only won't submit, they can't submit. Look at verse 7 again. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Total depravity produces total moral inability. They go hand in hand. It's, it's not that the sinful person is physically unable to obey God. They, they are physically capable of obeying the law of God, but they are completely morally incapable of obeying because they are slaves to sin. They're dead to sin. Their conscience is seared. They are dead morally. So, so total depravity doesn't mean that a person is as wicked as he could be. The, 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 the language there for that Doctrine is kind of confusing. It doesn't mean they're as bad as they could possibly be. We, the unbeliever could sin more frequently, right, to, to higher degrees. There are unbelievers all over this town right now. The unbeliever only sins all the time, but we can all agree it would be worse for one of them to come in and shoot us all. So they could sin more. They could sin to a higher degree, But what it means is this. In our fallen condition as an enemy of God, the sinner does not obey God. In fact, he cannot, and the reason he cannot is because he's dead in his sin. That's what it means. That's what Paul's telling us here. They do not submit. Indeed, they cannot. R.C. Sproul says, this is why the Bible stresses reconciliation. For reconciliation presupposes estrangement, some breach or schism between two or more parties. The estranged parties of which the Bible speaks are man and God. We are at enmity with God, estranged from God because of our fallen nature. We cannot obey his law. There is only one way out of this hopeless condition. This is a hopeless condition of all flesh, of all of mankind. There is one way out. God must dramatically lay hold of them and intervene on their behalf, causing them to go from death to life, giving to them a new heart giving to them a new mind, a new will, new desires. And unless God grants this salvation, they are completely unable to obey his law. Fourth, then, the believer is incapable of pleasing God. Well, it stands to reason, doesn't it? If they're hostile towards God, if they will not submit to his law, and in fact they are so dead in their sins they cannot submit to his law, how could they possibly be pleasing to him? It it makes sense that he would say this. So he says in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the purpose for which human life was created. It was to please God. That's why we were made. And how is it that we please God? Not just by existing. It's not like all the posts we see on social media that just basically tell you God is delighted with you just as you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It's like, do you ever see the post where somebody's just telling you, Mom, no matter what you're doing, you're doing great with your kids. Oh, no, that's not true. There's some bad moms out there, right? It's also not true that God's just pleased with everyone. No, the unbeliever cannot please God. 
They are incapable. They are totally incapable. They, they are an unregenerate, dead in sin, enemy of God, disobedient by choice, disobedient by nature, totally incapable of pleasing God because the very first step in pleasing God, it's impossible to please God without taking this first step. It is to believe his son. That is the first step of obedience. That is the first step of pleasing God. There's no pleasing God without genuine saving faith. That's why Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. That's the first step. So the unbeliever can't take that first step. But because they don't believe. In fact, apart from saving faith, our every single action is sinful. Our every single action is displeasing to God. John MacArthur, again, in his commentary, says, even an unbeliever whose life seems to be a model of good works is not capable of doing anything truly good because he is not motivated or empowered by God. Because his works are not produced by uh, because his works are produced by the flesh for self-centered reasons, they can never be glorifying to God. Paul will say later in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, whatever doesn't pro- proceed from faith is sin. Whatever it is that we do that doesn't proceed from the saving faith that the Lord has granted to us in, in, ca- in reconciling us to himself in Christ, whatever doesn't proceed from that is sin. And so the sinner remains at enmity with God. The sinner remains rebellious. The sinner remains disobedient. The sinner remains powerless to please God. That is such shocking language that the Apostle Paul uses to describe the state of the unbeliever. But Paul's next words in verse 9 that we'll get to next week are this. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. Again, he's, he's demonstrating an extreme separation here from those who are in the flesh between these two, two kinds of people. Those who are in the flesh, those who are in the Spirit, those who are dead, those who are alive. We either obey God or we obey sin. Either our mind is set on the flesh or our mind is set on the Spirit. We are either self-centered, self-focused, or we are God-centered, God-focused. We are either depraved and morally incompetent to obey God to please God, or we are redeemed and morally able to obey God and actually pleasing to God. There's no gray area between these two things. There's no mixing of categories between these two things. They couldn't be more different than they are. And if you are here this morning and you have realized, maybe for the first time, just how wicked and deceitful your heart is, how, how by nature it is dead toward the things of God. If you've heard yourself described in the words from Romans 8, and you recognize yourself to be one whose mind is set on the flesh, you must hear the words of our brother Paul that the outcome of that life is death. The outcome of that nature is death. It's destruction. It's condemnation. Ultimately, It's hell. But what Jesus Christ offers to you is freedom. What he offers to you is hope. What he offers to you is life. He offers you salvation in him. He offers you life in himself. God raises the dead of whom we all once were because of his great love. He he is abounding in mercy. 
to wicked sinners like us. And, and friend, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, if you call on him, he will save you. If you call on him to show mercy to you, he will show mercy to you. If you call on him for his grace, his grace will abound to you. He will give you a new heart. He will give you a new mind. He will give you a new will. He will cause you to to delight in him, to delight in his holy will. You will no longer be animalistic, driven by your own passions and your lusts, which I know are making you miserable. He will do this for you if you'll come to him. He will do this for you if you call on him. Westminster Confession of Faith says this, the chief end of man, okay, what we were created for, what we exist for, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Oh, that's the call. See, it's not that the, it's not that the things of the flesh are fun and the things of the spirit are like, all right, we finally have to grow up. Sometimes I have that feeling where I think, remember when I was a kid and had like no responsibilities whatsoever? My day was just dominated by like, what seems fun to me? We sometimes think of this, the things of the flesh are like that. I'm just doing what I want to do. The things of the Spirit's like, it's like growing up and taking on responsibility. No, no, no. This is where joy is found. This is where life is found. This is where freedom is found. The chief end of man, you were created to glorify God and enjoy him Forever, there's no greater joy, and if you will come to him, he will do that for you. He will do that for you. He will cause you to have greater joy in him than you ever had in those things of which you are now ashamed, as the Apostle Paul would say. Believers, we need to remind ourselves of this truth. We need to remind ourselves that the ways of the flesh, the mind that is set on the flesh, is nothing but death. There's no life there. There's no joy there. We must make it our daily, hourly practice to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, to preach the gospel to ourselves that says Jesus is better than whatever this other thing is. And if we call out to him in that way, he'll do that for us too. He will do that for us too. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Pray, Lord, that you would cause these truths to take root in our hearts, that we would, we would see the greatness of your salvation, even as we shudder to look at the way of the unrighteous. Lord, what your word reveals to be true about those who are not in Christ, Lord, that that would cause us to run all the more to you. Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that you would, by your spirit, call out to them, draw them to yourself, that they would be saved, come out of their death in the flesh and come into life in your spirit. I pray for us, Lord, whom you have already saved, Lord, that we would live day by day in the light of these glorious truths, that, Lord, we would be humbled by what you have revealed to have been true about us in the way that we walked in rebellion and hostility towards you, Lord, that we would be, be humbled before you, be humbled in our interactions with other people who are just in that same state that we were in. And Lord, that we would again stand in awe, overflow in gratefulness to you for your great saving work in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in us, that you would be glorified through us, that we would have joy in you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.